0: it's good to be back here in Marysville. My name is Mark Hoxo, I am one of the pastors at Damascus Road Church, but I mainly now uh, attend and serve at the Snohomish campus, and so I don't get to be here in Marysville as often, although you'll see me poke my head in here every once in a while because I I can't stand not being here uh, all the time. So, but anyway, it's really good to be here and it's really nice to see a lot of familiar faces and then it's also good to see some faces I've never seen before um, because that means that things are still going on here in Marysville which is, which is just uh, glorious and it's a blessing. Um, things are happening in Snohomish as well. Uh, God is being faithful. There's, 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 uh, it, it seems like the, the space that we have is already filling up and uh, it's looking a lot like what we have here in Marysville. So very cool, very neat, very uh, awesome to be part of it. Well, we've been studying the book of Malachi, and uh, we, uh, we, we, we're going right through it, uh, verse by verse. And we're into the second chapter. And today we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 16. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go ahead and read that, uh, and then we'll get started. So starting in verse 10 of chapter 2. Do I need to do something to adjust this myself? Is it too close? Okay, we'll try that. Hopefully that'll be better. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And this 16th verse is actually a bit of a difficult verse to translate from the Hebrew into English, or any other language for that matter. So it's alternately also been translated as, for for the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce, and him who covers his garments with violence. Okay, so this this part of Malachi is, uh, according to what the commentators say, one of the more difficult parts of Malachi, to interpret, and I think part of that is translationally it's a bit difficult to to uh, understand exactly what Malachi was saying, but we're going we're going to try to work our way through it anyway, and uh, I just pray that God would uh, just uh, uh, through his holy Spirit kind of make clear what his word means and, and what, it, what he has for us through his word. but so far as we've been studying this book of Malachi. Um, We have seen that Malachi has been bringing uh, charges against the priests uh, of his day. Uh, And he's been charging them with gross negligence in, uh, in their worship of God and in how they have been leading the people of God. They've been charged with despising the Lord's name by receiving from the people to offer to the Lord what Malachi calls polluted offerings. Lame sheep, blind and broken-legged sheep uh, were being brought to the altar by the people of God and being offered to God as sacrifices. Now clearly the people were not bringing their best to God and the priests uh, didn't show much concern as they received those gifts in the low quality of those offerings. Now, the priests were also charged by Malachi as, as causing many of the people to stumble because of the instructions that they were giving them. As messengers of the Lord of hosts, they were responsible to shepherd the people, just as pastors are now. Their job, of course, was, was uh, different in many ways and, and extensive in some ways that, that we don't have that same office of priesthood nowadays in the New Testament, as they did back then. But they still had a responsibility to teach sound doctrine and right theology. That is, the things about God that were true and had been revealed over the, uh, over the past generations about who Yahweh was. But because they had turned aside from the way, many of these priests had fallen from the true worship of God, and they were guilty of corrupting the covenant of Levi of course, we heard last week through Sam and Chris, I think, here about how this Levitical priesthood of which they were, they were uh, part and parcel of, uh, they had the responsibility and God had given just to Levi and to Levi's descendants this office of the priesthood. But they had corrupted that office through their uh, negligence as priests. Their worship of God had become so polluted and was raising such a stench toward heaven that, as we heard last week, God promised that he would take the dung from those sacrificed animals that they were bringing into the temple and that he would spread that on their faces. That is the point of where God was at with these priests. I mean, the total disgust that he had with them. The worship of God by these sons of Jacob had become nothing more than empty religious exercises. Now in today's text, Malachi shifts his attention away from the priest to all the people, including the priest, and also including himself. And we can see that in the 10th verse where, where he includes himself with the people when he says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Then why? Then Why, then, are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It appears that, as we read this passage, that the worship at the temple was not the only place where the people had lost true devotion to God. This apathy that the worshipers had toward God had had certainly infiltrated their, their homes and their families as well. In fact, this is the area of life where it probably started for them. True worship and devotion of God must begin in our hearts, and it's in our homes uh, before it goes anywhere else. And then it necessarily must impact every area of your life as well. When devotion to God is relegated to one or two days a week or or month, or year, or only in a particular place, or in a particular building, and hostility toward God and indifference toward God is what marks your life outside of those times. Then we know that that uh, worshiping God is false and displeasing to Him when we actually then come to worship. That's what we see here. That's what we see happening in Malachi. is that is exactly what these folks were doing. Their lives, their hearts were far from God. The God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the one who had shown incredible faithfulness to his, his children, his people, these people, these people during the time of Malachi had completely lost their devotion to God. But when we're talking about marriage and divorce, that is where you see either faithfulness or faithlessness. And in their case, there was extreme failure when it came to their marriages and to the rates of divorce and marrying foreign women, as we are about to look into. Their faithlessness here amounted to what he calls a profaning of the covenant of their fathers and the sanctuary of the Lord. By profaning, he means that they failed to acknowledge as holy those things that God had set apart as being holy. And of course, those things that were holy to the Israelites, first and foremost, was their covenant. I believe with God that they had, they had, uh, uh, that they received through Abraham. But in what ways had they been faithless? And what abomination had they committed? There were primarily three things. First, Malachi tells us that the men were marrying uh, women who worshipped idols. He calls them daughters of foreign gods. Secondly, they were divorcing their Hebrew wives, presumably, sometimes, perhaps more often than not, so that they could marry these foreign women. And thirdly, Malachi expresses God's displeasure with them because when they came to the altar, they were weeping and they were groaning because they were getting the sense that God was displeased with their worship. Well, in order for us to, I think, really understand the weight of the charges that Malachi is bringing to the people of God and against them. It's helpful for us to to have an understanding of this covenant of the fathers that he's talking about. So we're going to take a, a few minutes to look back at some of the passages uh, in the Old Testament where where God gives the covenant to his people. And this covenant is likely a reference mainly to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there's some disagreement with that. But I, I personally think that he's talking about his covenant with Abraham, which was later ratified uh, by Moses uh, in the wilderness. So if we go to uh, Abraham, who was um, a descendant of Shem, who was a son of Noah, uh, so there is a, there's a lineage that goes back to Noah with Abraham. Um, and you know interestingly enough, because he 's a descendant of Shem and it 's quite a few generations uh, from Shem, who was one of the three sons that Noah brought with him onto the ark and so uh, the Jewish people who are called Semites or Semitic people, it comes from the fact that they are in fact children of Shem, also their descendancy goes their ancestry goes back to Shem so shemites Semites, same difference right but anyway, uh, Abraham uh, in in Genesis chapter 12, he's asked by God to, to leave his country. And he's told to go to a place that he doesn't even know. All right? And God makes him this promise at the time. In Genesis 12, he says, And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed now later in chapter fifteen, God makes the covenant, and it 's a very interesting chapter um, to read because there's a, the way that God actually uh, does the covenant is 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 very very amazing i 'm not going to go into that now only i 'm going to read to you what what God said. Um, in the, covenant. in the covenant that God made with Abraham, he promised him that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So he makes this promise. Now at this time, Abraham has no, he's got no kids even. You know, he and his wife Sarah are like, they're both getting on in their years. No children yet, but God is making this promise to him. And, he's, and he makes this covenant with Abraham saying, you're going to have a lot of kids. And not only that, but you are going to have so many children descendants that it's going to be like the stars in the heaven. And later he tells them, it's, he goes, look at, this, look at the sand on the, on, the, on the ocean, on the beaches. And he goes, that's what your, uh, what your line is going to be, look like. In chapter 17 of Genesis, God establishes circumcision as a sign of the covenant with Abraham and for all of his descendants and makes him this promise. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now later, many years later, uh, Moses is with the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness. And they're, they're encamped, at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses to the mountain, and he tells him this, and this is in Exodus chapter 19. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is the covenant that God made with his people, the covenant that was ratified by circumcision on every male child as a sign and a seal of that covenant. And as part of that covenant, God had given very specific instructions about many different things. I mean, if you look through uh, the Mosaic laws, there's, there's a lot of different ways in which God said, this is how I want you to live your lives as a nation that has been set apart from the rest of the world. One of those, one of those laws or instructions that God gave to his people is in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4, he says, you shall not intermarry with them. That is with those lands where they went to, where God was telling them that you're going to be going into Canaan and and there's going to be all these different people groups there who you're going to conquer, that I'm going to go and I'm going to help you, um, uh, you know, kick them out of the land. And he said, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That was God's main concern. He very much knows the hearts of his people. He knows very much what happens when, when those who follow him begin to intermarry with those who don't know him, who don't want to know him, have no interest in, in the God of, of, the Hebrew, of the Hebrews. And so he said, you don't marry them keep yourselves apart from them. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that every time a Hebrew male sinned sexually, that he was reminded of the terms of that covenant uh, by the marks that he bore on his own body. A little earlier than Malachi, through Nehemiah, we see that the same thing was going on. Uh, He had the same concern, he sounded the same warning That Malachi did, and and in Nehemiah, uh, he says this. He says, in those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are these different tribes that the Jewish people were intermarrying with. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And... See, there's a a guy who's, like, really passionate about what God says, right? He's actually beating on them, and he's pulling their hair out. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless... Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Well, marriage is important. And while ultimately this passage that we're studying isn't necessarily just a passage about marriage or divorce and that this is, you know, you know that's not part of this sermon is, is to say, you know, this is how... Uh, this is when it's okay to divorce, this is when it's not, and all that. But marriage is important. And uh, as we see in this passage, it's, it's to God very important. Um, in, in, in verse 10, Malachi, he references creation. When he says, has, has not God created all of us? And, 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 and he does that to remind us that, that marriage is not just a cultural construct that has been created by us. Or by by man, sometime in history, uh, you know, because if it was, then maybe we could we could shape it, we could bend it, we can twist it to make it fit whatever we wanted, whatever definition we wanted. Not that that happens in our time today at all, but it could possibly, I suppose. But really, God created marriage already uh, in the Garden of Eden as a divine institution between one man and one woman. <clears throat> after God had created, you know, everything that he did and had created Adam, the aloneness of Adam was the only thing that God looked at and said, now this isn't good. And so to repair that, he created, he He, he took a rib out of Adam and he created Eve, and Eve became his wife. And even though, and, and, and with Eve then, of course, Adam was now a, com- a complete, He was he was a complete unit. Up until that point, he was, He was incomplete. He was only half of who he should have been. But with Eve, there was completion. And even though sin entered into the garden, because of their disobedience, God uh, allowed them to fulfill his earlier mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And before long, we see that the earth is being filled up. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we can see that God views marriage um, as something that is, is very important. And he, and, he, and he compares marriage to his relationship with Israel, with his people. Just as now the church is the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel was, in a sense, the bride of Yahweh, even though that terminology isn't used. But many times God does refer to Israel and Judah as having committed adultery with him by worshiping foreign gods. Take a look in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, an example of God's, you know, again, um, a rebuke of, of, of Israel and Judah for, for uh, committing adultery. And uh, it says this. It says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, After she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore, because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So you see, uh, God's absolute you know, discouragement and discussed with, with Israel, and um, and and like committing adultery with stone and tree. That's just a reference to to to, to images made out of stone, uh, and the tree image, of course, is is when uh, it, it seems like whenever there was idolatry in Egypt, they would erect this astrot pole, which which they would use as a as a uh, an idol, and it represented I, I, uh, false gods. So, God says that Judah only returned to him in pretense, not with a whole heart. And so we see that this pretend relationship with God continues, and that is why uh, Malachi issues such a dire warning when he says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descent of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So anyone who is, who is uh, engaged in this type of idolatry, who is... Marrying foreign women, and at the same time, coming to me with offerings. He says, these are the people that, God says, need to be cut off from the tents of Jacob. Not only them, but their descendants as well. That's how seriously God takes this type of, uh, uh, this type of false worship as was going on in, in Israel. The purpose of marriage is about something far greater than our own personal happiness or fulfillment. As they were obviously um, more interested in, is what can make them happy? How can they feel more fulfilled? I mean, I think a lot of these uh, these men were probably, as their wives were getting older, uh, maybe in their own eyes, they thought their wives were, were losing the, their youthful beauty that they once had, so they were divorce them to go and find this, you know, Really a uh, young, perhaps a very nice looking exotic woman, and taking her into his home uh, as his wife. Now that's just um, using marriage as uh, complete completely in the opposite way, obviously that God intended. but the Bible tells us really about what marriage is about. Uh, Paul tells us in <coughs> Ephesians uh, that when a man and woman leave their respective parents and the two become one flesh they cleave to one another that this is a profound mystery and he says that it refers to Christ and the church it's in Ephesians 5:12 and as part of this mystery we see in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 that the lord is a witness at every christian wedding and in verse 15 we see that he apportions his spirit in the union of every Christian couple. The reality is this, that wedding vows are not only made to one another when we get married, but they're also made to God. God is a witness at our wedding. To the extent that we fulfill our marriage vows and our marriage covenant, we accurately represent Christ and his love and his faithfulness his sacrifice to the church. When a man is unfaithful to the wife of his youth, he preaches lies about Jesus. And furthermore, as Malachi makes clear, marriage is, is more than um, just that, but there's also an additional thing. And he says it's to produce godly offspring. Now, imagine the challenges that, as parents, we all face in, in raising godly offspring. I don't think any one of us will, you know, if I say, now which one of you has raised really godly offspring? I mean, we're all going to feel like we fail at that. And it's only by God's grace that any one of us are able to, um, you know, we do what we can, and we pray that God does the rest. But that is ultimately what God is very concerned about, and he's concerned about that for future generations, just as he was then. God is still concerned about future generations now. The fact of the matter is, it's it's much easier and much more possible, and God works within the framework of family and a husband and a wife, being married to one another, committed to one another, faithful to one another, um, in it for the long haul together, raising kids together, that is, that is how God works. And that's why where God takes our weak efforts and he's able to actually do something with that. And he does that. He blesses those efforts. But when divorce happens, when families are torn apart and uh, remarriage happens that shouldn't happen and things like that, that is where you just see families tend to get kind of, they, they can get messed up. And it can be really ugly. And it can be really sad. And... um Ultimately, God is concerned about godly offspring because that is how he, that is, that is, those are oftentimes, those children are the ones that he uses to carry the torch of the gospel for future generations. But when a person, um, when a person goes out intentionally and seeks out an unbelieving spouse uh, who doesn't love Jesus, who doesn't trust Jesus, who doesn't believe Jesus, uh, that's profaning the covenant and inviting the discipline of God. Now, these men that uh, uh, Malachi is uh, rebuking in this in this passage were, were going to the altar. Uh, they were bringing their sacrifices, and then there's a there's a there's a sense in which they know, and I'm not sure exactly how. It could be because there just wasn't uh, there was uh, blessing was being withheld from them terms of their crops and in terms of just their overall uh, economy. It could be that's how they knew about it. Or perhaps it was in a more direct way. But they were very well aware of the fact that God was rejecting their offerings. God was not pleased with their offerings. So they were weeping and moaning and crying and carrying on. And But but God is not fooled by that. They God knew and Malachi knew that this was like this was completely, this was not right contrition. This was not right mourning. This was not right sorrow. Uh, but it really was uh, a lot like the sorrow that Cain experienced when, when after, after he made his offering to God, one of the very first offerings that we read about in the Bible, uh, he brought his offering, and God was not pleased with his offering. And so he also... Exhibited some sorrow for that, but his sorrow turned to anger, and he, of course, killed his brother Abel. Now contrast that with David, who, in the Old Testament, we know, um, who was in many ways a very godly man, a godly king, but also had his falling of of committing adultery and then covering that up with a uh, sin of murder, and um, then when he finally came face to face with his own sin. He also cried. He also had sorrow. He also exhibited a contrite heart. But it was a much different type of contrition and sorrow than what we see in these guys who are coming to the altar crying about uh, their gifts not being received. In Psalm 51, we have record of David's uh, contrition and his confession to God. And I think it's helpful for us to see what that looks like. Because they came to him as hypocrites, pretending that everything in their life was just fine, that their, their, their marriages were within God's, you know, will, and so forth. But meanwhile, they were, you know, away from the altar. They were going home, abusing their wives. They were divorcing their wives. They were marrying daughters of foreign gods um, and, and, and carrying on in all sorts of ways that was uh, totally outside of the covenant which they had uh, through Abraham. Uh, in the New Testament, Peter tells us that uh, uh, the importance of this marital relationship being, uh, being good in the sense that if we are, if we are praying to God, he says, uh, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Clearly, God cares about the relationships at home, especially between husbands and wives. Now, Malachi tells us that God hates divorce. Now, why does he hate it? It's clear that he does. Now, for anyone who's been through a divorce or has had friends or family go through a divorce, you understand why. Perhaps your parents divorced while you were yet a child, or perhaps when you became an adult. It doesn't matter. It still hurts. Yet we see divorce happen very frequently in our cultures today, uh, even among Christians. We live in a world where it's easier to, to annul a Marriage covenant than it is to to uh, to annul a say twelve month lease on a, on an apartment, and when it comes to lives affected, uh, the marriage covenant should be much harder to annul. God's desire is that we honor our marital covenant and the vows that we spoke on our wedding day. As a priest during Malachi's day, had a lax attitude toward divorce and remarriage back then. So do many pastors in the church today. And it truly really is its kind of sad when you think about it. Now, God hates divorce for a number of reasons. First of all, because it breaks faith. It violates truth's standard. Secondly, God hates divorce because it really is harmful It's harmful to the couple involved, usually leaving scars that will never fully be healed. It's harmful to friends and family and to society in general. But, you know, most of all, it's harmful to any of the kids that are involved, any of the children that are involved. You know, a lot of people say that it's actually better for the kids because now we're not fighting all the time. But you know what? I I don't know. I I think that... um, especially as Christians, when we have struggles in our marriages, we need, to, we need to do whatever we can to try to make that marriage work. And I understand sometimes there's things that come up, and every case is different. But most of all, God hates divorce because he created marriage to be a picture of Christ and the church, uh, lived out by committed faithfulness of husbands and wives to one another. The love and the sacrifice of a husband to his wife, and the and the uh, respect and the submission of a wife to her husband. So, divorce really illustrates an apostasy uh, or a falling away from Christ that illustrates damnation. Now, as we get to the end of this passage, notice that in verse 15, Malachi charges the people of God to guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And in verse 16, he says, so guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. He says the same thing twice, back to back, in verses 15 and 16. And any time something is mentioned twice in a row like this, I think it's meant to be a, special, a point of special importance, and so we dare not miss or overlook this command. Now, for these folks during the time of Malachi, it had been 50 to 100 years or so since the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the the people of God, they apparently were becoming a bit weary. Uh, Perhaps they were weary because they expected certain prophecies to have already been fulfilled that had been prophesied by some earlier prophets. Possibly they felt that God had really kind of removed himself and that he was so distant that it really didn't matter how they lived their lives in any case the apathy with which they worshiped god it didn't come to them overnight as with all great failings it must have happened over time as they began to allow sin to slowly creep its way into their lives they were definitely not guarding themselves against sin and faithlessness. That is why Malachi exhorts them twice so that we too might get the message that we not allow sin to get a foothold in our lives. I'm reminded again of the words to the song, Slow Fade by Casting Crowns. I quoted the same verse verse, uh, probably a few years ago when I preached the sermon. I can't even remember what it was about, but I just remember this verse. Um, but it makes sense in this in this in this case. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that nothing? Nothing momentous or big like that happens to us just all of a sudden. It's like, you know, like when you hear about a pastor failing morally or someone else having some sort of, it's like, wow, I, I would have never expected that to come from that person or that person to do that thing. But you can be sure that when that happens, that person has been involved in different degrees of sin for quite some time now, and he had not been uh, not been guarding himself, had not been um, confessing his sin, fighting his sin, uh, letting in others know about the struggle that he's involved with, and that goes for every single one of us. The fact of the matter is, the enemy of souls, Satan, um, he would love to see he would love to see me fail. He would love to see Pastor Sam fail, or any one of our pastors. But he also wants you to fail. He wants you to go down. All right, and so. Don't allow this slow fade to take place in your life. Don't allow these uh, the uh, the sin that can so easily creep in, kind of get in unnoticed. But that's why it's so good to be part of a community like this, to be to be involved in small groups where we get together our, ro- our road groups, uh, just to be involved in, in in all types of things like that, and and just to be transparent about your lives with one another because. That goes a long way toward not allowing this, this type of thing to come in. Well, this brings us now to, to all of us here at Damascus Road Church. Now, we're no longer under the old covenant of Abraham. We have a new and better covenant that was established when Christ came. For those of us, or for us, who can now look backward at the time of the cross of Christ, we have a better view And we have a better understanding of the purpose of marriage and and all sorts of things uh, than those who lived before Christ came. Now, there's many marriages represented here this morning, among all of you. There are also a fair number of single people here today as well. And there's also some who are divorced. Some of you have been married for 20 or 30 or 40 or more years. I've been married... Come this Sunday, or a week from today. Cheryl and I have been married for 23 years. Um, And surely you would testify, and I would testify with you, that it hasn't always been easy. There's been some struggles. There's been some some mini wars that have taken place, I'm sure, in some of your marriages. To to make it this far, uh, you've had to overcome some really big challenges and struggles that certainly have tested the depth of your commitment for one another. Uh, certainly, you would also agree with me that it's by the grace of Christ that, that you've been able to persevere this far. Uh, now, there's some marriages here that are also struggling. Uh, and you're wondering, how you are going to make it another, another week or another month or another year? Because times in your marriage have gotten really tough. And I just want to to encourage you that it's worth the toil. It's worth the struggle. Just remember that covenant that you made with your spouse and with God on your wedding day. The pastors here at Damascus Road are committed to helping in any way that we can. And I want to encourage you to speak to me or to any of the other pastors that are here. And I pledge to you that we will do whatever we know to help you. And if we can't, we will point you toward resources that will. That will. Now, to those who are single and desiring a spouse, I just want to uh, remind you that God's will for you in finding a believing spouse, a Christian spouse, hasn't changed. God reveals to us through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, it's good counsel, and I think godly counsel for you, that when you consider someone that you're going to marry, that you would expect that this would be your one and only spouse so long as you both shall live. What if when you were buying a car, you knew that that would be the only car that you would ever purchase for the rest of your life? What if it, you had to make it last? There would be no second chance. Would that change how you made your decision? Of course it would. You probably wouldn't just make your decision based on looks and curves alone. You might even do some research on the engine, on the running gear, on the body, uh, how long the paint lasts, and all that stuff. But probably the engine would be the most important. You might even get to know something about the manufacturer of that car and maybe check the reliability record. Of that car as well, and then once you made a decision to purchase that car, I'll bet you you would take really, really good care of that car. I'll bet you would maintain it very regularly. You'd probably change the oil every one or two thousand miles, um, and any time it broke down, you'd make sure it got fixed by a really good mechanic, and you would spare no expense in getting it repaired correctly. Now, if you're t- If you're going to put that much into a car, you really ought to put that type of thinking into who you're going to marry as well. Now, to those who are divorced, I want you to understand that it's not always a sin to be divorced. Now, you may be the victim of an adulterous spouse who chose to profane his or her covenant by sleeping with someone else. Or perhaps your spouse deserted you when times got tough According to the Bible, it's not a sin to seek out a divorce in these situations. It may not always be the best thing to do. Because I think that even when things like that happen, it's still good to seek reconciliation. But it is not a sin. Perhaps if you're divorced, you're struggling right now because you know that your divorce happened because of your sin and that you are the cause for the dissolution of your marriage. Now, there may be some steps that you need, uh, that you know that you need to take to make things right, but maybe you're not even sure what, if anything, you should do. Again, let me encourage you that I, along with the other pastors here, am available to walk with you through whatever path lies before you. But first and foremost, I don't want you to carry this burden any longer. I do not want you to feel condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh. Again, um, if you are in Christ, if you belong to him, if you have given your life to him, remember this, that Christ took your sins Even your sin of divorce with him on the cross, and he paid for them there. There's not a sin that you have committed that he didn't pay for. So bring your burden to him and lay it at the foot of the cross and allow the blood that he so freely shed cleanse your heart and your soul completely. Brothers and sisters, there's not one of us here this morning that does not need to be cleansed of our sins daily. Whether we're single or divorced or married, newly married or been married for many, many years, we still carry this body of sin which, which um, wars against the Spirit. So come to Him today. Come to Jesus today for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the love that He so freely offers to any and all who come to Him in faith. It's free, but it wasn't cheap. Cost the Son of God His life If you're not a Christian here this morning, I urge you, do not let this moment pass you by. Listen. Listen to the call of the Savior. In Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.